welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. And today we're going to be talking about how our cultural position may have shaped what we consider to be plausible such that we have a bent toward naturalism or materialism. I think that this can be a cause for many people to think that naturalism is the more reliable position or the more reasonable position. And I think that it can cause even some faithful to doubt. So I think it's going to be a fun show and I hope that it'll be useful. Stick around. Laws of logic are not material in nature. So no, not- numbers are not either. Sure. As an atheist, I assume you're a materialist? Yes. Okay, so you believe all that, it, all that exists. I'm a materialist. Uh, that's all that I've been able to have any demonstration for. Okay, so- okay, you've just said you're a materialist, and then you were asked, do these things exist immaterially? Yes. And now you say, so you are a materialist. Yeah, that's all I have any evidence of. What? So on the screen right now, you see J.P. Moreland, who I think is just one of my personal heroes. In fact, if you like Eric Hernandez, another YouTube apologist, then you should know that J.P. Moreland is like uh, his favorite uh, Christian philosopher and um, has had a big influence on him. But J.P. Moreland also wrote Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview with William Lane Craig, has taught at Biola, and uh, is just an, a well-known thinker, uh, author, debater. He's got great stuff on the soul. And he wrote this book that I think is pretty useful. And some of what I'm going to be uh, referring to is from that book, and it's called In Search of a Confident Faith. Uh, primarily, it's meant to be um, a resource for Christians that are experiencing intellectual doubt or even emotional doubt about the Christian faith. And in that book, he lays out what are some of the cultural suggestions that we kind of take on board without even realizing it. And unfortunately, uh, we because we don't realize it, if you asked even your typical Christian what they believe about these things, they would give the proper Christian answer. But in the back of their minds, there's this underlying naturalism, uh, at least in terms of these suggestions that are on offer in our culture today. So we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to say that our culture very much does impact and influence how we think about facts, how we think about epistemology, like how we know things, and does determine what we think is likely to be true about the way that the world is. And even if you're not aware of that this is happening, perhaps especially when you're not aware of that this is happening, what it can do is it can cause the Christian to doubt and it can confirm skeptics in their atheism or naturalism or whatever. So here's an example. Uh, What you're going to see on the screen right now is a couple of two-dimensional shapes. And what these, so take a look at these. You've probably seen optical illusion type things like these before. Uh, You probably have seen enough of those that you already know that these two lines are the same length. However, uh, the one on the right likely looks uh, like it's longer to you. Now, because these are two-dimensional images, you know, uh, as a person who's been exposed to these, that this is just an optical illusion. That's all it is. But here's what J.P. Moreland has to say about it. So he says, look at the figure and notice what you see. Notice that the right vertical line looks longer than the one on the left, even though their lengths are the same. Why? Because we see these shapes hundreds of times a day. The right diagram is the inside corner of a room. The left is the outside corner of a building. We are unconsciously used to seeing them as three-dimensional objects, and so we unconsciously try to adjust to the two dimensions of the figures on the page to our more general experience. In this case, our habits of perception and thought shape what we see. When this diagram is shown to people in other cultures, in cultures having no square or rectangular buildings, they have no such subconscious habits, and they see the horizontal lines 
accurately as being of equal length. So you see the our culture of seeing those in terms of building structures, rectangular buildings. As a result, it dictates how we interpret the two-dimensional images on the screen. He goes on to say, there's an important lesson in this. Every culture has a set of background assumptions. We can call it a plausibility structure, a plausibility structure that sets a tone or a framework for what people think, how they feel, and how they act. It directs what they will entertain as plausible, what they will habitually notice or disregard without thinking about what they are doing and how they form and retain their beliefs. So what he wants to argue in this chapter is, look, we know this is happening. It's without question a fact about the nature of reality that without even realizing it, we take into account our personal experience, the things that our culture values, the objects and the ideas that float around in the world in which we live. And then we interpret data through those lenses. And so if you live in the United States today, and most of what you get through media and television and uh, the school system and everything else is all based on at least methodological naturalism, uh, a study of nature, the idea that science can give us reliable facts and uh, it gives us good information that we can use practically to get by. And then you have an entertainment world and uh, a structure of uh, certain organizations that, uh, that back that up and push it further to the idea that this is actually the best way to get information. This gives you the most reliable information. Then what it means is whenever you hear something uh, about the supernatural or about God or about um, uh, prayer or something like that, then what it does is whether you're even aware that this is happening, like the person who's used to the rectangular buildings, you don't even necessarily know that it's happening, but what's happening is you're interpreting that information or those suggestions in light of the societal or cultural suggestions uh, that you have around you. Whereas you could go to certain parts of the world today where the belief in the supernatural is the dominant belief and those same things don't happen. Just like the uh, uh, people that don't live in cultures of rectangular buildings accurately see the lines of the same length on the page in the optical illusion. Uh, the same thing happens with uh, the same thing happens with these supernatural things. People in cultures where the supernatural has not been denigrated to the degree that culture and certain government institutions have uh, intentionally or unintentionally degraded and denigrated it, um, they recognize the supernatural. So our cultures have major impacts. And so what Moreland wants to do is he wants to lay out seven ideas or suggestions that uh, our culture gives us subtly, and then he wants to talk about how those in some cases are self-referentially incoherent, but how we even as Christians sometimes take those things on board. And by the way, as we begin, I want to say that, th again, this happens to Christians too. A friend of mine who works here at the school was home visiting his mother. Now, his mother's been a lifelong Southern Baptist. His mother's uh, uh, you know, very uh, well-educated woman, very well-educated in the church, has uh, been involved in church all her life. Uh, but when the discussion of, and, and maybe it was the sister too, the sister, same thing. Uh, when the discussion of the demonic, the, the idea that there are angels and demons came up, um, there was kind of like a skepticism in the air. And this is a really odd thing because the idea that angels and demons exist and are real supernatural entities out there is something that is a system-dependent belief as far as Christianity is concerned. If Christianity is true, um, then angels and demons are a part of that uh, whole thing. But yet somehow, even Christians, when we in our information, uh, you know, science-heavy, empirically, you know, interested, 
materialistic society, what happens is we, we hear that and we think of it as being something so foreign to what we get in the news and what we get on uh, television and what we get in the classroom that the idea, the plausibility of it goes down. And to show you how this happens, I mean, it happens to all of us. These institutions and these particular figures carry a certain level of cultural currency. Um, so if you hear that there's a something in uh, some random self-published book by some person you've never heard of, uh, and then there's Oxford University Press, and the Oxford Press book disagrees with the self-published book that, that nobody's ever heard of the guy, you're likely going to go with Oxford University Press. Or take just two already recognized publishing houses. One carries more credibility than the other. Uh, take uh, the New York Times versus uh, Jacksonville, Florida's Florida Times Union. Which one carries more currency with the culture? The New York Times does. So these institutions carry that with them. Uh, we do this, we, we provide this symbolic currency to degrees as well. Someone with a PhD has more symbolic currency than someone who didn't finish high school. In the same way, two, if you have two PhDs, the person with a PhD from the more recognized or lauded school is going to be the one that has the more symbolic currency. This just happens all the time, uh, we, and we don't even really think about it too much. And so when that happens in our culture, uh, it can shape how we view the world. And that can be a dangerous thing because what if your culture is wrong? That can be very, very dangerous. So we're going to take a look at some of these things. So here are the seven of the, of the background assumptions of our culture that can produce doubt or for the skeptic or atheist can serve as confirmation. And the reason that I put on the thumbnail for this video, uh, something about skeptics are so gullible or something like that, uh, it's kind of clickbait, but it's also true. The truth in it is that... I think that many people who consider themselves skeptics and who are atheists uh, or and or who are atheists are people who have taken on board these assumptions from our culture gullibly without necessarily thinking too much about them. And it's not surprising. I'm not saying you're stupid. Gullible is not the same as stupid. Um, the thing is, most people, including me, often take certain societal suggestions without thinking about them too much. And so for those, and if that's not you, if, if you have thought about these things deeply, then if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. But I think for many of us, this has happened. So number one, it is smarter to doubt things that, than to believe them. Smart people are skeptical. People who find faith easy are simplistic, gullible, and poorly educated. The more educated you become, the more you will become a skeptic. Okay. Now, let me say, first of all, that skepticism in the sense that we're talking about here is, um, I think, can be a dangerous thing. And I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. I think there is something good about a healthy level of skepticism. I do, I do think that that's a reasonable thing. And believe it or not, uh, I'm kind of skeptical by nature. Um, one of the reasons that I'm into apologetics today is because I think that uh, at some point in my life, I wanted to see if there's good reason to believe this. I became a little bit skeptical myself. Unlike a lot of apologists, I never went through a time where I was an atheist or had a serious crisis of faith. Not really, not like, like others have. Um, Mike Lycona is another example, a friend of mine who is well-known in the World of New Testament scholarship, and he went through a serious time of skepticism, not about God's existence, but about the resurrection of Jesus. And so he 
he challenged that. And so I think a healthy level of skepticism is a, a helpful thing. But the, And it is true that the more you know, the more you are aware of how much you don't know. In a certain respect, I know much less now than I knew when I was 21. Now, those are that's kind of an equivocation. Obviously, I know more information now than I knew when I was 21, but I was more confident in and more sure of everything when I was 21. I thought I had the whole world figured out. This is a commonality with many 21-year-olds. Uh, nevertheless, skepticism can go too far, and the reliance on skepticism as a way of uh, conducting your life or kind of as a principle for life, I think can become dangerous. Let me give you an example. Uh, the head of Skeptic Magazine is Michael Shermer. And here's what he, uh, let's see, that's not him. Here, here's, here's a video, I think, made by either his organization or one like it that includes him. And let's get a taste of it. What is a skeptic? What is a skeptic? That's a mighty fine question right there. What is a skeptic? Skepticism has a long historical tradition dating back to the ancient Greeks. Like when the philosopher Socrates observed, All I know is that I know nothing. What happened to the Parthenon? Of course, that kind of know-nothing skepticism is just silly. If you were skeptical about everything, you'd have to be skeptical about your own skepticism. Is it just me, or has he not really said anything yet? Modern skepticism is embodied in the scientific method. It's about gathering data and testing claims made about natural phenomena. That's phenomenal! But a claim becomes a fact only when it is confirmed by investigation and observation to such an extent that reason demands our temporary agreement. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. We test, observe, and confirm claims, then they become facts, and we're done. That's easy, I can do that. Well, not so fast. All facts in science are provisional. That means they're subject to challenge, and ultimately, even to change. Oh boy, here we go. That means skepticism is a method leading to provisional conclusions. Oh, I am getting such a headache. But some claims, such as water dowsing, ESP, and creationism, oh, have been creationism tested and failed those tests so completely, so many times, that we can provisionally conclude they're not true. Sounds to me like you're just a big fat claim denier. No. We do need to test and investigate claims, but proper skepticism begins with a mind open to the possibility that the claim could be true. We just need to see the compelling evidence that the claim is true before we believe it. Okay, that actually sounds fairly reasonable. And when claims have been tested and the results are inconclusive, we withhold judgment and continue to formulate hypotheses and theories until we gather the evidence needed to reach a provisional conclusion. Okay. I see what you're trying to do here. You're trying to sound all reasonable so that people don't think you're a regular old cynic. Well, let me tell you something, Mr. Shermer. I am on to you, and that is so cynical. We okay, we don't have to see any more. The point here is I want you to see that, number one, you see skepticism being directly presented by Michael Shermer as the method by which we should conduct our lives and certainly conduct science and, and those sorts of things. Here's a couple of problems with that. First of all, what Shermer is... Uh, advocating for is what we would call a local skepticism. You have global skepticism and local skepticism. Global skeptics are skeptical of everything. And um, so like literally everything. Uh, people like Matt Dillahunty and others will say that they, I've even heard him admit that he's kind of a presuppositionalist. He has to just kind of presuppose certain things and then start from there. 
um, like like that we can reason to a certain degree and discover facts and truths and things like that, that we can trust our senses to a certain degree, things like that. Um, So a global skeptic is skeptical about everything. And if you ask them, are you skeptical about whether you're skeptical? Yes, I'm skeptical of that. Uh, So that, that just leads to an infinite regression that you can't escape. So there's global skepticism. Local skepticism is a little bit different. Local skepticism is we grant certain things, right? Like I said, Dillahunty, we grant certain things because we have to have a starting point somewhere. And then from there, we're skeptical. Uh, The problem is it's very difficult for local skepticism not to bleed over into global skepticism if you push them far enough. But here's one of the bigger problems with skepticism. One of the bigger problems is that you you get to choose, and you may not even be aware that you're doing it, but you get to choose what you're going to be skeptical about. For example, take uh, your average skeptic who is not a working scientist and is not a working philosopher, just your average person who's a skeptic. Maybe they got a YouTube channel. And so they say, hey, we ought to be skeptical of things. We shouldn't believe things until they're demonstrated to be true, until we've seen it. We, you know, we, got, we got to be able to prove this using the scientific method. And then be, it has to be repeatable. Like he said, it's provisional. It could change in the future. But we're not going to believe something until it can be demonstrated, whatever in the world that might mean, and that we could perhaps repeat it. And really good evidence for it and that sort of thing. Okay, great. High five. The problem is you then get to choose. So for most of the skeptics that I'm aware of who are atheist skeptics, they're not skeptical about evolution. You say, well, yeah, but that's because evolution has all this evidence. And I mean, it's just a fact. And if you don't believe in evolution, that's just crazy and all these kind of things. Great. But did you personally stand in the lab and conduct those experiments? Uh, did you personally uh, work with these biologists to to discover whatever evidence you think you have? Have you actually been a part of those things? No, no, you haven't done. What, what are you doing? You're taking it on the reliability of what somebody else says. You're you're believing what some book says, or you're believing what some uh, holy man. I'm sorry, not holy man. Some some uh, uh, body in the lab coat priesthood. I mean, I'm sorry. What some scientist says. <laughs> See, th- this is the thing. It's, it's, you get to choose what you're going to be skeptical about. You didn't actually get to do those experiments. Um, but you, but you are going to be skeptical about creationism and say, well, that's just failed so many times where you're going to be skeptical. And by the way, when someone says creationism, they usually are referring to young earth creationism. And I'm not a young earth creationist, but the fact of the matter is that you get to choose where you're going to place your skepticisms and you may not even realize that you're doing it because we're all biased to a certain degree. And with that bias comes a direction, a trajectory that we may not even realize that we are angling toward. And usually that is whatever we hope it will be. Uh, This is often called confirmation bias. And I'm not saying that it's confirmation bias insofar as you're only going to click on the articles that come up on Google that you think will support your view, but it can happen much, much more subtly than that. In, in, in choosing not which articles you're going to read, but what you're going to be skeptical about. And people that tell you that, well, no, 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 I'm skeptical of all claims until I hear some explanation for it. This just this is just false. Nobody does that. All right, now um, let's move on to another problem with skepticism. Another problem with skepticism is that, okay, uh, we want to believe as many true things and as few false things as we possibly can. That is great. I'm all for that. And that's where a healthy kind of skepticism does come in. The problem is for the skeptic, they have to lean one way or the other. So let's imagine we try to resolve this problem. So it will never perfectly get there. No human being will ever perfectly get there, except maybe Jesus. But we want to believe as many true things and as few false things. So we want we want the ultimate truth. Okay, so you can go. Let's imagine we went to two extremes here. And on the one hand, we said, okay, we're going to disbelieve everything that 
anyone ever tells us or that we ever read. Okay, now if you did that, you would, you would, if you disbelieved everything, you wouldn't end up believing any of the false things, but you also wouldn't end up believing any of the true things, right? Um, but then on the other extreme, what if you said, okay, then I'm going to believe everything everybody ever tells me and read, believe everything I ever read. Okay, you'd end up believing all the true things, but you'd also end up believing a lot of the false things. So how do you get to that happy medium where you believe all the true things and none of the false things? The problem is that's very, very difficult and we all want to get there. But what the skeptic does is, the skeptic says the way to get there is to lean toward the skeptic, to the, to the, to the disbelief side, lean on the skepticism. The, the idea that stands behind this is um, it's better, I'd rather be the kind of person that doesn't believe falsehoods than the kind of person uh, that, that like, I, I'm willing to give up believing some of the true things. I, I realize I'm going to miss out on some of the true things, but I'd, I'd rather not believe the false things and give up some of the true things if I have to err one way or the other. This is like a damage control. This is an understanding that we're never going to totally get there, so we need to avoid the, the more dangerous situation. The problem is it's, it's as dangerous to disbelieve certain true things as it is to believe certain false things. The, an example that Moreland gives is think about medications. It is uh, as dangerous not to take the medication that you need as it is to take the medication that you don't need. In fact, it may be more dangerous. So there is danger on either side of this thing especially when it comes to the question of whether God exists and if Christianity is true. It's, it's just as dangerous for you to disbelieve the true thing as it is for you to, to, uh, to not believe the false thing, right? So this is a, a problem. This is a serious problem. And I appreciate that the skeptic is trying to find a way to meander through that. And it does sound very reasonable, but th this idea that we should lean on skepticism doesn't work because the local skepticism inevitably will collapse into global skepticism, or it has to just take certain items as axioms um, or take them on a colloquial understanding of faith to get the whole operation started. Um, I'm sounding a bit like a presuppositionalist here, but hey, uh, my adversaries here are, uh, if they're a local skeptic, are a bit presuppositional. So we, we have that problem. And then we have the further problem of you're leaning towards something that is just as dangerous as if you le leaned the other way. So these are important issues to keep in mind. Now, what if the reason is not really the, the danger side of it? What if it's not really that you want to you know, avoid danger? It's not damage control that's causing you to want to lean toward skepticism, lean toward disbelief, but it's that you want to appear smart or you want to feel smart. Now, you might think that I'm making fun of the skeptic here. I'm not. Let me tell you something. It is a part of human, just the way most humans are, that we want to feel smart. It is incredibly insulting to us when people uh, make it out as though we're not smart. There are certain insults that dig more deeply at us and more personally to what we consider to be our value than others. So if you, if you told me, for example, uh, I've been around Braxton Hunter. Maybe I overheard you saying this to someone. I've been around Braxton Hunter, man. He's not a good basketball player. Okay, well, now hold on a second. I played basketball in junior high. In fact, I was one of the best on my team, and I played casually in high school. And I remember the coach thinking I was pretty good, and he asked me, why aren't you on the team? You're good at basketball. And even today, I'm not that bad. But <laughs> basketball is not something I really take on as an important part of my identity. And honestly, I realize I'm not the best basketball player. So if I overheard you saying that I'm not the best basketball player, 
it, it wouldn't affect me that much. It wouldn't really bother me much at all, okay? It would have almost no purchase on me. It would be inconsequential. Now, let's ratchet it up. For most people, their physical appearance matters a little bit. Uh, it matters more to some people than other people, right? But let's say that I overheard you say, Braxton, you know, he's not that great looking. He's not that great looking of a guy. Okay, that's going to bother me less now than it would have 20 years ago. And it, and it will bother, but it'll still bother me a little bit. I mean, I, hey, man, what the heck? You know, I'm trying to do the best I can. I can't help it that I'm bald. I'm trying to work with it, you know. Uh, I try to visit the gentleman's blogs to see how I should, uh, you know, hey, I know you ought to have facial hair. If you got nothing on top, have something going on on your face, right? I get it. I'm trying. Uh, so so it would hurt me a little bit. You know, not, not crazy. I would get over it. But uh, that's a little more that's a little more straightforward to my own vanity or my own personality or my personal identity. We, we value how we look or how other people think about how we look. And most people do uh, to some degree. Now, obviously, if I was if I wanted to be a model or something, fat chance, but if I wanted to be a model, uh, then that might hurt me even more. But then let's go a layer deeper. And, and I think this is true of most people. Now, there are some people that their physical appearance would rank higher than this. But let's think about your intelligence level. If I overheard you say, and some of you will in the comments precisely because I'm saying this and have at it, but if I heard you say, you know, this Braxton Hunter guy, he's really not that smart. I bet he doesn't have a very high IQ. Okay, now hold up a second. Now this is starting to get really personal, you know? Um, I think I would roll with it because one thing that YouTube has taught me and that ministry has taught me and that public speaking has taught me and that having children has taught me, is that you got to let comments like that roll off your back, right? Nevertheless, that would be a little bit personal. Why? Because for all of us, especially the kind of people who'd be watching a video like this or interested in these kind of topics, our intelligence, our IQ, uh, how smart we are, is kind of personal, okay? It's, it's kind of one of the things that we, we want people to think that we're smart. Um, atheists who are interested in this, they want people to think they're smart. Christians want people to think that they're smart. It's just a part of who we are. And as a Christian, it should, it, I, I, you know, we're to esteem others as higher than ourselves. And so I should be, uh, you know, I should, that shouldn't bother me that much, but I'm a human being and I'm imperfect. And I, I do have, I would have problems with that. And I think most people, especially the kind of people, again, who are interested in this kind of content are that way. We, we don't want to appear, uh, dumb. We don't want to appear, unintelligent. And so when you come to skepticism, the idea is, well, um, maybe I lean, don't believe because I don't want to be duped. I don't want someone to pull the wool over my eyes. I don't want to be believing something just, just because I'm told that it's true. And so you, you lean towards this skepticism, uh, especially when the people that you consider to be the smart people hold that position. Okay. Well now I want to identify with them for sure. So this can happen. By the way, this happens with everybody. I'm not just saying that this is an atheist thing. This happens with everybody. But in such a case, you're leaning toward don't believe instead of leaning toward do believe in that scale we're talking about precisely because you don't want to appear unintelligent. However, that works both ways too. Just like the danger issue, that works both ways. So for example, if you, if you lean toward disbelieve on certain facts that you probably should believe, you're also going to appear ignorant or not very reliable or maybe unintelligent. Um, maybe you lean skeptical on whether or not we are on a spherical earth, right? <laughs> okay, some people are going to consider that kind of person not really all that smart. 
Now, whether that's fair or not is up for grabs, but I'm just saying it it can go either way. So I don't think skepticism gets you to that point where you really want to be. And if the goal is to believe in, in true things, believe true things, um, I'm going to lean a little bit toward truth with a healthy skepticism still in hand. So it's a balance, but I don't get this lean skeptical sort of a thing. I, I just don't uh, understand where that's going. All right. So that's the first thing that um, that uh, that Moreland says. Okay. The second thing is university professors are usually unbelievers because they know things unrecognized by average folks that make belief in the Bible a silly thing to have. So he's saying this is another suggestion that's in our culture is, hey, these university professors are usually unbelievers because they know things unrecognized by average folks. Now, um, here's the thing. The, the question of where you get this kind of what has, and I, I'm not calling it this, but what has unfortunately been called a village atheism is very much among the average readers. So um, here, here's a statement from William Lane Craig that came, I'll put it back on Moreland now, but um, here's a statement from William Lane Craig that was after uh, a debate, I think, when, this is Wintry Night provides this to us. Um, this was uh William Lane Craig after the April 7, 2011 debate with Sam Harris at Notre Dame. Um, and and here's, here's what Craig says. Quote, I wonder, is something culturally significant is going on here? Several years ago, I asked the warden at Tyndale House in Cambridge why it is that the British society is so secular when Britain has such a rich legacy of great Christian scholars. He replied, oh, Christianity is not underrepresented among the intelligentsia. It's the working classes which are so secular. He explained that these folks are never exposed to Christian scholarship because of their lack of education. As a result, there is a sort of pervasive, uninformed village atheism among them. I wonder if something like this could be happening in the States. I was surprised to see the number of blue-collar folks from the community buying Harris's book and thanking him for all he has done. They didn't seem to have any inkling that his views had just been systematically exposed as logically incoherent. The intelligentsia have almost universally panned Harris' recent book, Read the reviews. Yet it is lapped up in popular culture. Wouldn't it be amazing if unbelief became the possession of mainly of the uneducated? So this idea that, um, and you can go look at the Pew Research data on this. I think 2017 has it, where the highest educated religious people seem to be still as religious as the less educated religious people. So th this is an interesting idea, uh, but uh, number one, it's just an assumption. It's just a suggestion of the culture that the intelligentsia um, know stuff that you don't know, so you should just believe them. I mean, after all, uh, you know, when a Christian apologist becomes interested in, say, William Lane Craig's work or Richard Swinburne or somebody like that, they go devour their work to try and see what is it that they're saying. What, how, why, you know, why should I believe that this is true? How can I, how can I use this in my own life in talking with people? Um, but then, often, though not always, often what I hear from. Um, many skeptics is, well, you know, um, Sean Carroll figured all that out. I mean, Sean Carroll completely demolished William Lake Craig in the debate. Oh, really? How did he do that? Well, I, just go watch the debate. I mean, just go see for yourself, right? It's, it's almost like just an appeal to authority. Now, the, again, that's not fair because that's not everybody. And if it's not you, uh, if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. But, um, but this, this, is, this is a problem that there's just this suggestion that university professors are usually unbelievers because they know things unrecognized by 
average folk that make belief in the Bible a silly thing to have. Um, this goes into, uh, let's see the next thing. Religion is a matter of, this is the next suggestion. Religion is a matter of private personal feelings and should be kept out of debates, political and or moral in the public square. Obviously, um, that has been a suggestion. I think it's less a suggestion now than it used to be. However, it's still there. And I'm inclined to agree with my atheist and skeptical friends on this one that that's absurd. I mean, I, if, if we're talking about what's true about the nature of reality, that can be a matter of public debates. We should be able to talk about that. We should be able to kick that around. And um, I, I'll go a step further with what I said in my last video. I don't, I'm not going to just uh, respect someone's belief just because it's their belief. I'll respect them as an individual. I'm not going to respect their belief just because it's their belief. All right, but this leads us into number four. Science is the only way to know reality with confidence, or at least it is a vastly superior way of knowing reality than other approaches, e.g. religious ones, and science has made belief in God unnecessary. I hear this one more than I hear anything else. Not from regular folks, but from people on YouTube and online. Okay, so at this point, what I want to do is I want to show you something. Um, this is Francis Collins. Francis Collins was the head of the Human Genome Project, one of the most incredible scientific advancements in our day. And um, he is today a born-again Christian believer. And people will often point out about Francis Collins that, well, he didn't become a believer because of science. Well, whatever. That's not really the point I'm making. Uh, the point I'm going to make by showing you this video will be evident by what he says. But this is he wrote a book called The Language of God that came out uh, over 10 years ago now, I think. But um, incredible book. But it's a good book, and you should read it. And uh, if you're a theistic evolutionist out there, uh, Collins is a theistic evolutionist. We'll hear a bit about that right now. But uh, I want you to hear what he has to say about the suggestion in our culture that we just heard about, that kind of science is the way to know things. Let's hear what, or at least the most reliable way. Here's what he has to say. Science is about trying to get rigorous answers to questions about how nature works. And it's a very important process that's actually quite reliable if carried out correctly with generation of hypotheses and testing of those by accumulation of data and then drawing conclusions that are continually revisited to be sure they're right. So if you want to answer questions about how nature works, how biology works, for instance, science is the way to get there. Science. Okay, now, now notice what he's saying. He's saying if you want answers about how nature works, we're going to come back to this, but how nature works, that's the field that science is supposed to be approaching, right, is the natural universe, the natural sciences. Right, here we go. To believe in that, and they are very troubled by a suggestion that other kinds of approaches can be taken to derive truth about nature. And some, I think, have seen faith as therefore a threat to the scientific method and therefore to be resisted. But faith in its proper perspective is really asking a different set of questions, and that's why I don't think there needs to be a conflict here. Uh, the kinds of questions that faith uh, can help one address are more in the philosophical realm. Why are we all here? Why is there something instead of nothing? Is there a God? Isn't it clear that those aren't scientific questions and that science doesn't have much to say about them? Okay, now notice something. We, we so often hear, well, where's your scientific evidence? Someone said the other day, where's your demonstration uh, that God exists or whatever? And I said, okay, now, I, I don't want to be obtuse, but do you mean by demonstration something like science or science, something sciencey? Well, yes, that's how we understand what, what's true and what's not. 
and say, okay, well, then, then that, that betrays a, a non-scientific philosophical underpinning here, doesn't it? That science is the best or most reliable way to get to the truth. By the way, do you notice something about this one? Number four, let me read it again, this suggestion. Science is the only way to know reality with confidence, or at least it is a vastly superior way of knowing reality than other approaches. Now, is that a statement that is subject to science, or is that a philosophical statement? It's a philosophical statement, which means this is a self-referentially incoherent statement. It would be like the statement, all English sentences are far less than five words long or something like that. All English sentences are less than three words, right? That's self-referentially incoherent. If you refer it to itself, it doesn't work, which means it should be rejected. That's number four. And by the way, we're not there yet, but that's also numbers five, six, and seven on the list here of cultural suggestions that very much are cultural suggestions. But let's keep going with this. But you either have to say, well, those are inappropriate questions and we can't discuss them, or you have to say we need something besides science uh, to pursue some of the things that humans are curious about. For me, that makes perfect sense. But I think for many scientists, uh, particularly for those who have seen the shrill pronouncements from extreme views that threaten that what they're doing scientifically and feel, therefore, that they, they can't really uh, include those thoughts uh, into their own uh, worldview, uh, faith can be seen as, uh, as an enemy. And similarly, on the other side, some of my scientific colleagues uh, who are of an atheist persuasion are sometimes using science as a club over the head of believers, basically suggesting that anything that can't be reduced to a scientific question isn't important and it just represents a superstition and it should be gotten rid of. You hear it right there. There's the suggestion. And he says even some of his scientific colleagues do that. The problem is, I think the, the extremists have occupied the stage. Uh, those voices are the ones we hear. I think most people are actually kind of comfortable with the idea that science is a reliable way to learn about nature, but it's not the whole story. And there's a place also for religion, for faith, for theology, for philosophy. Uh, but that harmony perspective doesn't get as much attention. Nobody's as interested in harmony as they are in conflict, I'm afraid. My study of genetics certainly tells me incontrovertibly that Darwin was right uh, about the nature of how living things have arrived on the scene by descent from a common ancestor under the influence of natural selection over very long periods of time. Darwin uh, was amazingly uh, insightful given how limited the molecular information he had was. Essentially, it didn't exist. Uh, now with the digital code of DNA, we have the best possible proof of Darwin's theory that he could have imagined. So that certainly tells me something about the nature of living things. But it actually adds to my sense uh, that this is an answer to a how question, and it leaves the why question still hanging in the air. Other aspects of our universe, I think also uh, for me, as for Einstein, uh, raise questions about the possibility of an intelligence uh, behind all of this. Uh, why is it, for instance, that the constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy, like the gravitational constant, for instance, have precisely the value that they have to in order for there to be any complexity at all in the universe? That is fairly breathtaking, and it's lack of probability of ever having happened. And it does make you think that a mind might have been involved uh, in setting the stage. At the same time, uh, that 
does not imply necessarily that that mind is controlling uh, the specific manipulations uh, of things that are going on in the natural world. In fact, I would very much resist that idea. I think the laws of nature potentially could be the product of a mind. I think that's a defensible perspective. But once those laws are in place, then I think nature goes on and science has the chance to be able to perceive how that works and what its consequences are. All right, so there you have it. So here we have a scientist today saying, yes, the suggestion is that uh, even from scientists, and we certainly know from pop culture and certainly from atheist YouTubers, the, the idea is that if something doesn't come to us from science, I, now I'm not going to go so far as to say that you have a full-blown scientism. I think sometimes that is going on, but people have become keen to the fact that that's what's going on. And so uh, they've changed the language a little bit. It's not, so uh, scientism, a full-blown scientism or a hard scientism would be, would be something that says, um, science is the only way to uh, to come to truth about the way the world is, okay. But um, but a soft scientism would would say something like science is the best way or the most reliable way, and that's mostly what we hear now. It's still a scientism. It's just a soft scientism instead of a hard scientism. Um, so you know, make sure you don't let people get away with that. That's still going on there. Now they most of them are happy to admit something like that. The problem is what Collins just pointed out here is absolutely right. That science studies the natural world. So questions that go beyond nature they require a different sort of utensil to study them. Uh, philosophy is one of those things. Uh, history could be considered a soft science, but but history is a different way of discovering the truth about the way the world is, or at least the way the past was. And uh, there are also ex there's also experience. I mean, experience is a certain way to do it. So when people ask me, uh, "You're an apologist. Do you believe in religious experience? Do you believe that that's a way to, uh, you know, gain evidence and, and facts about the way the world is?" Yeah, I do. Now I can't. The thing is, I can't use my personal experience of God to demonstrate it to you. It's like when we were talking about prayer the other day. I um, I very much think that prayer has served as a powerful confirmatory piece of evidence. Um, or field of evidence for me personally, and I know it has for many other people, but I don't think it's the purpose of prayer to, to be an evidential thing. That's a personal relational thing uh, between us and our God. Um, it, it's not necessarily going to be, uh, in, I don't think it's intended to serve as evidential for outsiders or to the external world. I don't think it's meant to be an apologetic. Now, sometimes you do get radically answered prayer that does work out in such a way that it's just happenstance. It does serve as evidence for other people. And I'm not saying God doesn't occasionally do that intentionally. I'm just saying that I don't think that's the function of prayer. But the point is, we've got all these other areas, experience, history, philosophy. There, there's all kinds of ways to come to truths about the way that the world is or the way that the world was. And as others have said, and as I said in, in the Dillahunty debate, Okay, what you're saying when you say that science is the best way uh, to get at the truth about the way the world is, it's like you're saying you have a metal detector here, and this metal detector is is just phenomenal. I mean, every time there's metal, it chirps. I mean, it's an incredible metal detector. And so, um, I mean, every time I go out on the beach, and I, it's right there, it detects the metal. Uh, and since it's such a good metal detector, therefore, sand and water and trees and birds and fish do not exist. Well, now hold up a second, or, or likely don't exist, or that we have no way to study them. That's absurd, right? That, that's absurd. Uh, the metal detector represents science. Science is really good at what it's supposed to do, which is to study the natural world. 
it, it gets us, when done rightly, good information about the natural world. It's the metal detector aimed at one thing, metal, right? <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the supernatural does not exist. It doesn't mean that the immaterial does not exist. And as a result of that, we just need other devices to get at those things. So I think philosophy is a great way to get at those things. And if supernatural things are alleged to have happened in the past, then history is a good way to figure out what evidence we have for that. Um, so I think we have other avenues of knowledge, but to say the metal detector is so good, therefore we can't study sand and trees and stuff like that, that's just absurd. It just logically fails. It doesn't work. And so that's why that needs to uh, be gone. But that is uh, one of the new one of the suggestions that we get from our culture. Number five, we can only or we can know things only through our five senses. Now this is a similar claim. If I can see, touch, taste, hear, or smell something, then it's real and I can know it. But if I can't sense it in one of these ways, I can't know it's real and I must settle for a blind, arbitrary choice to believe in it. All right, so the materialism is very much the suggestion of our culture today. Here's a problem. Materialists affirm materialism, but a thoroughgoing materialism just doesn't work. Uh, I mean, for example, what about the immaterial things that we kind of have to believe are real in order to function. What about the laws of logic, for example? What about perhaps numbers exist that way? In fact, I want to show you a great moment from a debate. Some people will be surprised that I'm putting this up here. But uh, on the right, we have uh, James White and Jeff Durbin, and uh, they're presuppositional apologists. And then we have a couple of atheists. Let's see, Greg Clark and Dan Ellis. I think Dan Ellis is the guy in the red shirt, but I could be wrong. So anyway, they're debating, uh, does God exist or does the triune God of the Bible exist? But th now this debate was wild. Okay. I think that White and Durbin, even though I'm not a presuppositionalist, I thought they did a really good job. Uh, I thought the guys on the left, it was shocking. In fact, I would encourage everyone to watch this debate. Um, but um, I want you to, I want you to see uh, what Jeff Durbin this exchange that he has with the guy in the red shirt. I'm guessing that's Dan Ellis. And I want you to notice something. I want you to notice here, make sure I have it on single speed, not double speed. Um, I want you to notice that the guy is claiming to be a materialist, but he ends up having to affirm something that is not material. And then he has to uh, back up and say, no, 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 I'm a materialist. And he gets caught in a contradiction there. I want you to hear how this goes. The question being asked of you in cross-examination right now is what are the laws of logic from an atheistic perspective and how are they justified in your worldview? They're justified under my worldview because they comport with the reality in which I find myself. Are they material in nature? No, I don't believe so. So laws of logic are not material in nature. So no, numbers are not either. So, so very but good. But they so, exist. Okay, so, they, so you do believe there are immaterial aspects to reality? There are abstract, con abstract concepts with which we can, we can think about how the world works through using those abstract concepts. Are these concepts, abstract yes. concepts conventional in nature? Tell me what you mean by conventional Do in nature. Do we determine and stipulate as humans what these laws of logic are? Are they conventional? We determine what they are. I don't understand your question still. Laws of logic, do they, exi do they exist? Are they real? I just told you I think they're abstract concepts. Okay, are these abstract concepts things that humans by convention have merely stipulated or are they things that are they things that exist would as they be true without human beings? There you go. Uh, I believe that they would be. Yeah, I believe that they would be here whether human beings were here or not, but Okay, now I want you to notice what's happened. He's a materialist. He has said 
yeah, I do believe that the laws of logic and numbers are immaterial and they're real. They exist and they would exist if humans weren't here to think about them. I mean, if they were here and no human was around to observe them, then it's so I mean, it's a fun thing to think about. You, but, no, I appreciate that very yeah. much. So what would be your justification for uh, appealing to immaterial abstract universals given your materialism? Can you ask me that again? Sure. As an atheist, I assume you're a materialist? Yes. Okay, so you believe all that, it, all that exists. I'm a materialist. Uh, that's all that I've been able to have any demonstration for. Okay, so okay, you've just said you're a materialist, and then you were asked, um, do these things exist immaterially? Yes. And now you say, so you are a materialist. Yeah, that's all I have any evidence of. What? Existence, On what basis yes. are you holding to immaterial laws? Because you just said you believe the laws of logic are immaterial. So yeah, where do they believe, come from? I believe numbers are immaterial also, but I also we believe agree. that they are useful and exist. And we agree. And then we where do they come from? Yeah, so where do they come from? From human thought. So they are merely conventional. Wait a minute, wait a minute. They, come, they merely come from human thought? They would exist if humans did not exist. They're immaterial, but I'm a materialist. They're real, but I'm a materialist, even though they exist immaterially. And they come from human thought, even though they would exist if humans weren't here to think about them. Wow. Conventional. What do you mean by merely conventional? Human beings convene and stipulate what a law of logic or a law of arithmetic is. No, I'm, I just told you that I believe the laws of logic would be around whether humans created them or, or thought of them or were around to Thank recognize you. No, that, them that, or I appreciate not. that. Uh, if I could ask uh, Dr. Clark. Oh, man, I, I love it. And, and James White seems to, to, to see it, too. Uh, I wish I could get back to the face, but James White's sitting over there like laughing like, does he not see it? Now, he probably, I don't know if he didn't see it or, or he got into the middle of this and recognized some cognitive, you know, where he needed to do some theoretical accommodation in his own worldview. And then there was just a cognitive dissonance about it. I don't know. But the bottom line is, this was my favorite part of this debate. Um, it delighted me because what we had, what, not because I want to see this guy embarrassed or anything like that, um, but because I think what we see here is someone who is dogmatically affirming materialism, but at the same time has to affirm the reality of the immaterial, but then because of his commitment to materialism has to go back to materialism. It, it just, it, it's a contradictory worldview. It, it doesn't make any sense. And this is where I have some sympathies, I guess, lately with the presuppositionalists that I've been listening to. Um, there's a shout out to Eli Ayala, friend, friend of mine who's a presuppositionalist debater. So, uh, yeah, this we can only know things through our five senses. Okay, and again, here at number five, we can know things only through our five senses. Is that not uh, something that was reasoned to? In other words, isn't that something you don't know on the basis of your five senses? Doesn't that mean that number five is self-referentially incoherent? But yet it very much is a suggestion of our culture. Number six, if we can't get the experts to agree on something like the existence and nature of God, abortion, or life after death, then we just can't know anything about it. You know, the, now I think the kind of people that watch this channel, whether you're an atheist or a theist, I don't think you buy this as much. But in, in our culture, the suggestion often is, well, there's disagreement about that. And so instead of thinking more deeply about it, we just, well, then who knows? You know, and that is dangerous, whether you're an atheist or a theist, whichever side of this you want uh, is your side and you believe or you want to be true. This is dangerous because what the last thing we want is people just throw up their hands and say, ah, 
I'm not going to mess with this and let the let the um, you know let the uh, scholars and the scientists and the philosophers figure it all out. And then when they all agree, they can tell me because that is that's I mean, first of all, they could all be wrong. Even if they did all agree, they could all be wrong, right? And that has happened in human history. Um, but there'll always be a disagreement. So that's that's a, an important piece of this, I think. And so uh, we reject that one, and I think most of you would too. Seven, enlightened people are tolerant, non-judgmental, and compassionate. They are unwilling to impose their views on others. Defensive, unenlightened people are the dogmatic, ugly, polar opposites of enlightened folk. Let me tell you something. There are quite a few dogmatic um, and not very friendly people out there and very defensive people uh, on both sides of this issue. So we need to reject that. Um, just because someone is... Uh, you know, is, is trying to get other, try, trying to enforce their views on others or because they're dogmatic or whatever else doesn't mean that their belief is true or false, right? So um, the point is we've got these seven cultural suggestions that are very much out there in the culture and that I think um, we, we have to admit we tend to take on board without realizing it. Now, here's the thing. Go back to the lines. You remember the lines on the page? Your culture very much kind of depends, determines how you view things. In the culture we live in right now, it, say you're a Christian experiencing doubt, or maybe you're an atheist and, and you're open to this. The culture we're in has set us up to be skeptical of anything supernatural, of anything not material. And for these reasons, and all of these reasons fall apart as solid basis as solid bases, <laughs> basis is, I don't know, uh, for buying into this stuff. And so we need to recognize now, what do you do about this? Well, actually, J.P. Moreland does give us some suggestions for how we should uh, be aware of this and not be as affected by our culture so that we can see the lines as the same length, um, so to speak, and not be duped and gullible um, as skeptics or as Christians. He says, step one, he says, spot the activating source, the evening news, TV show, movie, conversation at work, and be alert while being exposed to it. In other words, be aware that when you're watching the news, there may be a bias there. There may be a suggestion. Be aware in, that, in those movies that there is an atheist undercurrent that's going on. Be aware of what you're seeing and notice it. Step two, explicitly state to yourself exactly the doubt-inducing, if you're experiencing doubt, doubt-inducing cultural assumption that lies beneath the surface of the activating source. Start with the list of seven that we've been discussing. So uh, did they just appeal to what a bunch of scientists think? Okay, be aware that when it, it doesn't have anything to do with science, the opinion of that scientist is equal to the opinion of any Joe on the street, right? So, so keep these kind of things in mind. Um, step number three, challenge and question the truth of the cultural assumption. Is that really true? In other words, doubt the doubt. Um, if the assumption seems to be that, you know, uh, the material is all that there is or that the supernatural doesn't exist or that prayer doesn't work or something like that, ask yourself, is that really true? Is that, is that true? And even with lesser obvious claims, uh, in other words, be a bit skeptical but keep those two tensions and the tension between those two extremes in hand. Step four, replace the cultural assumption with a biblical truth, the correct alternative way of seeing reality and make it your goal to grow in God confidence about the alternative. This is specifically for Christians. Keep it, keep it in, in mind. What is the biblical truth about this? 
the biblical truth will never conflict with reality, but it will conflict sometimes with what's being said in the culture. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to have a little bit of cultural humility about, about the fact that for the vast majority of the world today and the vast majority of human history, this materialism is has not been the case. The assumption has been that the supernatural is real. And you would have seemed a bit silly if you didn't believe that. In fact, when you think about it, this idea that if I can't see it or touch it, then it's not real. It's a bit like when my when babies are so small and you cover up their eyes, in their mind, you don't exist anymore because they can't see you. And so they freak out, right? At least that's what all the baby books said was going on. I don't know if that's what was really going on. But that's kind of like what, what, what this is to you know extrapolate it out to where we are now. And in that sense, it's, it's a bit, and I don't mean any offense by this, but that view, not you as an individual holding that view, but that view is a bit shallow. It's a bit short-sighted. It doesn't understand or appreciate the beauty and the depth of the ways that we can take in knowledge and certainly of uh, Christianity, which I think the evidence and the reason bears out the best. So I thank you for showing up today. And hey, if you appreciate what we're doing here and you like these videos, um, make sure to contribute to us at Patreon. Uh, you can do that. Listen, I, I, the, the, as the giving goes up, the more responsibility I feel to make more of these videos. Um, like this past week, I only made one video because I was out of town speaking at Purdue University. And um, uh, by the way, there was a girl there named Lisa. And um, uh, Lisa... Nobody will know who you are, Lisa, but Lisa uh, came to the talk I was giving there. She said she used to be a real big atheist experience, Matt Dillahunty type uh, girl. And then she she's now leaning back towards the truth of Christianity. Why? Because of exactly what we've said, that it does seem so much deeper. The history of mankind seems to point to something much deeper. In other words, the evidence that I'm seeing seems to point to something much deeper. And so um, uh, thank God for that, Lisa. And I hope that others will follow you in that abandonment of uh, that sort of a worldview. But um, if, if you believe in this sort of stuff and want to keep it going, believe it or not, we don't have a whole lot of patrons and it helps us out when you give. So uh, you can click in the top right-hand corner of this screen or you can go to patreon.com slash Trinity Radio and we will try to make the show better as we go on and I will try to um, make more content more regularly. So thank you all so much for being here and I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Thank you.